Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to Church of the Red Door. If you've never been here before, raise your hand today. Just give us a little raise. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thrilled you're here. You got your this pastor here has an angry message today. I have an angry message, but it's it's going to be wonderful. I pray that it's going to be wonderful because it uh, centers around Jesus' heart. Before we get going here, um, we I just want to remind those uh, the Phoenix opens. I'll be leaving early tomorrow morning with a number of congregants. We're headed over to the Phoenix Open. Many of you know that's a a wild party ride that happens next week. Over half a million people will attend. Uh, that golf tournament, and uh, many of you know the 16th hole, and that hole is surrounded, it's a par three, it's surrounded by, I don't know, tens of thousands of people that uh, are filled with the spirits, spirits, (laughs) not spirits, (laughs) that golf golf tournament has become known as Party Central, but just to let you know, prior to that, on Monday night, any number of the tour players are going to be there. Uh, I've been interviewing now for, I don't know, seven years. We'll have several thousand people there that will come and listen to them talk about things other than just golf. We'll talk about golf and the golf swing and everything, and I believe it's going to be live streamed. So uh, maybe we'll send something out if you want to live stream. That'll be 6.30, and you're asking, I'm just terrible on details. It's 6.30 over there. I don't know if it's the same. That means 5.30 over here this time of year. Phoenix changes back and forth. But I think you can go from to talesfromthetour.org, talesfromthetour.org, and uh, you can pick that up, pick that up. Uh, if you'll remember, a couple of years ago, we had Scotty Scheffler and Sam Birds, and that was the first time Scotty had won. So uh, it's awesome. So we'll see uh, what God's going to do with that this, this week. Lord Jesus, we need a little help this morning. This is a, this is a very strange encounter, and many times we struggle to understand it, put it in context for the 21st century. So, Lord, we are definitely going to need your spirit, as we always do, to unpack this for us. Uh, I am an uh, unworthy vessel to do this, but, Lord, you, you use donkeys and people like me to help communicate your word, and that's the, the beauty of it, and that's why your word is transcendent, because you use earthenware things that are just here today and gone tomorrow to communicate your timeless, timeless truths and to communicate your heart. Lord, I pray that everybody in here would be able to take something away from this, uh, this final encounter of Luke chapter 19. And, um, and Lord, speak, just speak in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we've been working through this Luke chapter 19, but been working through the gospel of Luke for a couple of years now. And we have now made it to the conclusion of Luke chapter 19, and we've been looking at this kind of template that was created, these patterns that we can determine that Jesus is kind of walking in, not only in the footsteps of Jeremiah, but in many ways, the footsteps of many of the fathers. You get, as we looked at last week, Hebrews chapter 1, God speaks in many portions and in many ways to the fathers, through the prophets, and it all ends up being summed up in Jesus. Everything is pointing toward Jesus. And again, we're going to see what Jesus' heart was. You know, many in our culture today would, number one, they just discount Jesus as just a historical figure. Some kind of embrace the idea of Jesus, but he's just kind of a grandfatherly, white-bearded character in some ways now up in the heavenlies possibly that's uh, just approving of everything that we do and, and very happy and very forgiving. Well, God, Jesus is definitely the very epitome of forgiveness but uh, you're going to see some things here that kind of counter that, per- that particular perspective that you may have of Jesus. You know, we are so inclined to create our own Jesuses in our own minds. You know, one of the things we try to do here every Sunday is like, 
It, what was it, that, that old show, what was it, the, will the real uh, Bachelor, whoever, the Bachelor, will the real one stand up? I don't know. I'm mixing all these kind of deals. But will the real, they, they question them, they're behind a screen, will the real such and such stand up? And then they stand up and, oh, we can't believe it. And I, I don't want that to be the case for anybody in the hearing of my voice that someday you're going to stand before Jesus and go, that is not the Jesus I had anticipated. I mean, I just thought, you know, nice little bearded Jesus. Maybe you see him in a manger or maybe you just see him hanging on a cross. I can tell you he's at the right hand of the Father. All power, authority, and dominion have been given to him. He's, he will be so overwhelming that Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, said that one day every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, do you think there are going to be taskmasters there? Say it, say it, say it, or... Will it just be an overwhelming moment? I think all of us have been in those moments, maybe with creation, maybe you've been Ni- Niagara Falls or maybe you're Rockies or something in the, in the early morning and you just overcome by creation. Now multiply that times trillions and just coming into the presence of a risen Jesus where all power, authority, and dominion have been given to him and it won't, it won't require anyone, even the harshest, most staunch atheist will fall to his knees and say, Jesus is certainly, well, he's the creator. He's the king of the cosmos. He's, he's Lord. He's head and rule of all. So we want to get an adequate snapshot of who Jesus is. Luke chapter 19, verse 45. Now, before I read this, please understand that this happened twice in Jesus' ministry. If we go back into the gospel of John in chapter 2... We get a picture of Jesus cleansing the temple. It was early in his ministry. Uh, You can kind of piece this together. He did this twice. So this wasn't just once that he entered and cleared the temple. I mean, this was twice. The first time, uh, the story is a little bit more expansive than what we're going to get here. It It describes him as taking a whip bound with corbs and creating this. And I mean, so he wasn't just going in and going, oh, you shouldn't be doing that and kind of tipping over. I mean, this was, this was a raucous, whip-wielding uh, guy that came in. And it wasn't just the, the, as we'll see, those who were changing currencies. It was also those who were selling pigeons and, and lambs and various things for temple sacrifice. And so remember, that was the first time. Now we'll advance about three years forward, roughly, in the time of Jesus. And this is, uh, well, this is going to just front-run his, really, his final week before his crucifixion. So for some reason, he does this twice. And here's the story, verse 45. It says, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling. Evidently, he had done that once, and after a few years, they had just kind of wormed their way back in, and they were setting up shop again, these charlatans. And he said, and he was saying to them, it is written, and my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. And then in closing, and he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. And they couldn't find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging on to every word he said. Oh, that that would define us as a church. Let me say that again. Oh, that that would define, that we hang, that we cling to every word. I had a precious friend of mine uh, who never really studied the Bible that much extensively. And after three years, he comes to one of the fellowships I teach during the week. And after three years, he says, I think I finally understand why you guys just take so much time on just one verse. 
It's, and he didn't say it, but essentially what he was saying was, you guys seem to cling to every word that Jesus says, every action. I mean, you guys take this guy seriously. You're not just picking and choosing things that might help your life. You're really taking in the full message of who Jesus is. And that's exactly right. Oh, that that would define us. So what do we do with this? What, what is this all about? I mean, why is Jesus so upset? Well, in one word, I would say, and it's the title of the message, Jesus, the temple, and exploitation. These men, uh, and potentially some women as well, are exploiting something that emerges in the hearts of pretty much everybody on the planet. I think uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 simply says that God has set eternity in the hearts and the minds of men. He's put it in our DNA. The animal kingdom's not out there wondering, I wonder what happens to me tomorrow, or you know, what'll happen to me if I die, you know, and I'm concerned whether or not they're going to, you know, uh, is this ashes? Are they going to bury my real body? Or you think the animal kingdom's worried about that? They're just, they're just driven by instinct. What is it? It's because we were created in the image of God that that implant in us is there today. And that implant says there is something beyond what you can see, taste, touch, and feel. And why do people come to, why do people have this religious impulse? All over the world, every culture, every tribe, every people at all times have had some religious impulse. Now, you can mute that over time. You can harden yourself to that, but God has put it in us. And that religious impulse does a couple of things. Number one, it gives us a, Lord, is there, I hope there's justice. Please tell me that Hitler and Stalin and Popot, or those just people that we know, or whoever, Jeffrey Dahmer, or, you know, they're the worst of the worst, because we don't, we don't want to categorize ourselves with them, but please tell me that those men and those women who walked and were so brutal and so heartless and, and, and were responsible for so much death and murder and mayhem, please tell me that their end is not the same as the sweet little, my sweet little grandmother who never squashed a bug. Please tell me that there's justice. May I say, an atheist has nothing to say in that. Nothing. Except for, well, there is no justice. That is not appetizing to me. And the fact that that is in me is also an echo of something of God uh, ordained in me, that God ordained in me. There's something in me that cries out for justice. Animals don't cry out for justice. The animal kingdom doesn't, but we do. Meaning. You know, why do you think these people were coming to the temple? Because they, please tell me that my life means something, that there is some sense of accountability and that, that, that my life means something. And, and lastly, please tell me that when I die, this is not the end. I'll tell you something. People who were coming to the temple during this time uh, at Jesus' time, and it's still they're coming to the temple. We are a living temple. We're not, the temple is not UCR here. The temple is you. You are the temple of God. And there may be people that are listening to my voice, whether it's on television or live stream or whatever. There may be people that are listening right now, and they're coming to explore the temple because they wonder, do I mean anything? Is there any justice? Is there eternal life at all? And with that comes a great amount of zeal, I mean, there's an incredible amount of zeal when people start trying to think about, do I mean anything? 
There's fervor. There's devotion. There's all these things that people are crying out for. And then you have here people that are exploiting that thing that God has put in people, bad religion. You better believe Jesus is ticked off. And he's still ticked off. You know, one of the great fears in my life, and I do have fears. You say, we shouldn't have fear. You know, perfect faith casts out fear. Well, again, and I quote this a lot because I think about it a lot. You know, the James and James, it says, not many of you should want to be a teacher. Uh, you're going to incur a stricter judgment. You've got to realize, folks, that this is serious business. And Jesus is, this is a picture of Jesus in his ferocity and his hatred of people, little, well, children spiritually. You know, why do you think Jesus said uh, anyone who prevents these children or misleads these children that are trying to come to me, it'd be better that a millstone was hung around his neck. The exploitation of religion, is in, it's, a pan, it's endemic to our culture. It's ridiculous, and it's not, it's not just other religions. It's right within our own Christian ranks. I was doing a little look here back. Just, this was even four or five years ago through Ministry Watch and what people that were affiliated with high-level Christian ministry. There, there's a guy on TV that made $8 million from the funding that was given, you know, for whatever reason. And on, you know, plant a seed. If you have a need, plant a seed. And that seed always happens to be our TV ministry. He made $8 million. And then if you add what his, his couple other people and his family made, it was another million and a half, they'd taken almost $10 million in 2019 from people calling in with zeal to want to know if God is real and that God might respond to one of their needs through television, and that ticks me off. And I'll tell you right now, Jesus could come through there with a whip of cords today and turn over all kinds of, well, all kinds of money changers' tables and all kinds of people that were peddling goods. That makes me angry today. It, makes, it made Jesus angry, and if you want to have the heart of Jeremiah... If you want to have the heart of Jesus, you say, why the heart of Jeremiah? Because where do you think Jesus got this language? Go to Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 8. Listen to Jeremiah. Look, there's a cyclicality, folks, in human nature. It never will change. Never will change. This is, again, about 600 years before the time of Jesus. Listen to what Jeremiah is lamenting here in verse 8. Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and swear falsely and offer sacrifices to Baal and walk after those gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered that you may do all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers? Exactly the terminology that Jesus used some 600 years later. Things haven't changed from the time of Jeremiah to Jesus, and now 2,000 years later, you should expect that there are going to be, well, there are going to be hucksters. There will be. There are. And there will always continue to be until Jesus comes back and finally puts this rebellion within religion down. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. This was a problem already in the church at Corinth and in around. Paul is having to already, there are people that have come in and they're taking advantage of the DNA that's built into people where eternity is set into their hearts and they're taking advantage of that. Listen to what Paul says of the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 
2, verse 14. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. So, first of all, as a minister of the gospel, as anybody that would stand up and say, I'm speaking on behalf of God, I'm trying to take his word and make sense of it, so not only that we can apply it to our lives, but so that we can understand the very purpose for which we have been placed on this planet It should be a sweet aroma to those who are being saved. Now, to some, I am nothing but a thorn in their flesh. I understand that, and that's what he says. He says, we're a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are but but among those who are perishing, and to the one an aroma from death to death, and to another the aroma from life to life. Who's adequate for these things? So he says, I realize some people, it's gonna, what I say is going to sound like death if I'm actually preaching the gospel, but to some it's going to be an aroma from life to life. It's just gonna, it will radically change the way you view everything. If you're discouraged and depressed, no, you have meaning, you're, you're eternal, and that God is with you, and he loves you in Christ. In Christ, he loves you. He's always loved you, but in Christ, he can deal with you as a son or a daughter. Those are words that will change your life forever forever. But in the midst of this, notice what he says next. For we are not many like the many who are peddling the word of God. Peddling it. You know that word, kapel uo, in the, in, it, here in the Greek? It actually comes from a Greek word, and the root of that actually means, and the number one definition is huckster. Like they had hucksters back then. Surprise, 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 Gomer Pyle. They've got they had hucksters then, and we'll have hucksters now. What does this even mean? To be retailing in divine truth, to corrupt or adulterate the message, and by extension, peddlers would also then adulterate the commodities that they were selling in and around. If you've ever been with me to Israel or been to Israel, you know that there are many people, there are people coming from all over the world on this religious jaunt or this, this uh, trying to understand is God real and they want, they want to grow in their faith and you almost can't go anywhere in Israel uh, in these well-traveled places. So all nations, all tribes are streaming to Jerusalem now. And, uh, and they're selling you everything, and they will try, they'll try to sell you everything. But is it that much different here in the West? Is it? Turn on the TV at night if you haven't. If you have cable, turn it on, and you'll find everything. I mean, people are peddling it. And I'm not saying everybody on television is, is peddling it. But we've even talked about, you know, we have a local thing. It wasn't some people in our congregation had desired. Some of you may have seen Church of the Red Door on local television. We certainly welcome all those. And you know, at various points, well, we had some financial needs. It costs money. I said, we will never, we will never peddle. We're not going to peddle this. If this goes on, we pay for it. We're not going to ask for money. We're not going to, never. We will never do that. As long as, it's, as, long as I have a say in this, we're not going to do that. The, the word of God is free. It's, Isaiah saw this 700 years before Jesus. In Isaiah 55, come and buy this food and this drink without cost. The, the, the gospel is not reserved for those people who can afford it. God's not going to bless you just because you can afford it or send in some money to something. That is no different than the temple that Jesus was living in. And he was ferocious. 
in combating that, and you can see why. I had, <clears throat> had a, I've had a couple of experiences. I had a couple of experiences. I had one experience on a plane coming back uh, from Europe somewhere. I don't know why I was over there or when it was. They all kind of run into one another over time, but I was sitting next to a lady, and then her daughter, it turned out, her adopted daughter was sitting in between us, and uh, she had adopted her, and she was, she lived in, I think she lived in Greenwich, I don't remember, but I'm pretty sure it was Connecticut, I think she was lived in Greenwich, and uh, we just kind of struck up a conversation, and I was talking to her daughter a little bit, and, you know, and I asked them all questions, and, you know, where are they, and I think, if I, if my memory serves me correctly, she had uh, adopted this young woman from Russia, and, um, and, and so anyway, we kept talking and talking, and then eventually got around to, well, what do you do? And I'm like, well, well what should I say? Because i got two things I tell people. Either I'm a golf pro if I, if I need to go that route. Not that I'm ever ashamed of the gospel, but I don't want, you know, I'm, I'm not afraid of saying that. But now, because at that time, I was kind of golf pro, kind of links guy, kind of, you know, all that. And uh, so it would be different today, obviously. But I, I said, well, kind of in ministry. And immediately the mother just, you could tell, it just I mean, it was just... It was over. That conversation was over. And so I asked a couple more questions, and she was very... And I, and I was just praying. I remember praying. I was like, Lord, what, what would you have me say to this woman? And then I turned to her, and I said, you know what? You really reflect the heart of God because he adopted me and your heart to adopt this young woman is reflective of the God that I love and that I believe loves you. Well, it went from to mm, open, and we had, you know, this is a <laughs> poor lady. This is an international flight, man. I, had, I, got, I got a captive audience here. This is going to be good. You think that I go over here until you get on next to me on a plane. No, it, it was actually towards the end of the flight, and... Uh, and we kept in touch. I gave her my contact information. Uh, she ended up giving her life to the Lord. I found out. She said, well, I don't know what church to... And I knew somebody up in that area, and I called around. And Did anybody know a good church? And, and anyway, one thing led to another. So we started kind of keeping in touch a little bit. And, and, uh, and then it was over, and she'd gotten involved in a church that was... Well, at least from her perspective, and, and I, I don't know, you know, people are fickle at times, myself included. <clears throat> I don't blame it on the church. I don't know. I don't have enough information, but at least from her perspective, she didn't use this word, but there was exploitation. She had actually said that the church had required her now to come down and clean the, clean the bathrooms on the weekends and do this and do that, and that it wasn't voluntary and all that. And I, in my mind, I was just, where is my whip of cords? I am going on the next flight, you know. I mean, <clears throat> I was so furious if this actually could be true, that you'd take a new believer like that and in some way associate their salvation with the need to... Now, now if you do this out of the goodness of your heart and gracious and beautiful and this, and by all means, uh, you know, let's clean, let's clean restrooms for Jesus. I mean, I'm all for that. I'm all for a servant's heart, but not to be saved. But because I'm saying she wasn't far enough, and then we just, I email, I can't remember, and just kind of, I don't know where she is. My prayer is that the Lord reached down and brought <clears throat> good religion into maybe a situation that had the potential to be bad religion. Bad religion. I think about that a lot. Uh, it, it hurts me when I, when I think about it. 
Uh, I was in Israel a number of years back, and I remember uh, I have not been much, if you know anything about Israel. Sometimes I've been into the West Bank a few times, and we don't always go into the West Bank. But if you want to go to where Shiloh was and where the Ark of the Covenant was, you have to go into the West Bank. And that's, of course, you know, we hear a lot of now, certainly now, and then the West Bank and Gaza and things like that. And, but I had, and Bethlehem's there, too. So if you have an Israeli guide, they end up dropping you off. You go through a lot of checkpoints. You go into Bethlehem. <clears throat> and I went into Bethlehem, and, and it just had a bad vibe to it. I'm just, I don't know how to describe it other than it was just a bad vibe. It didn't feel like, so if I had traveled the world to see where Jesus ostensibly was born, and you go down to this little cave, and it's inside some kind of church area and thing like that. And I went down there, and you could tell there were some more high-collar type folks that were in there and different, I don't know, all the segments of the religions that this was their turf, and they'd kind of drawn lines, and we get, we get this part of the church, and you get that part of the church. And we found out the week later that they had, uh, I, I guess I started calling it the Bethlehem Brawl because they had taken their brooms, which they were there to clean up, and one of the priests or whoever had crossed over the line, and they just started beating the heck out of each other with their, with their brooms. <clears throat> Can you imagine having come? I wonder if Jesus is real, and you're coming with all the zeal and fervor and passion, and, and you walk into Bethlehem, wow, I could see maybe, maybe, and that's a little bit questionable, but potentially this is, might be where Jesus was actually, where he was actually born, and, and here we are, and and then, and then there's a fight, and you had religious leaders at back here beating each other with broomsticks? It's absurd. The other place in Israel I think about all the time is there's two places that potentially Jesus was crucified. One would be the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and one would be the Garden Tomb. And if you've ever been, it's the, two, the two vibes are as different as you can possibly imagine. One place you go and they're, you know, there's incense and things and they're trying to get you through as fast. They're mean-spirited. They got religious garb on. and they're very, can, I'm not saying everybody, but my experience every time has been there has been a bad vibe. And then I go over to the garden tomb and here's these people. We just love having you here. It's gracious. There's a places to worship. There's, there's a garden. You know, it's, it's, so I, just, it's, I'm, I said, if you want to go to the church of the Holy Sepulchre, go, but we're going to the garden tomb. Because the last person, and I take, I take people as with me at various points, and they don't, they don't know Jesus yet. And the last thing I want to do is take them into environments that are ostensibly Christian dumb, and it is nothing but money changers and, and bad, hip, hypocritical, you know, bad vibe religion. Bad religion. I hate it. I hate it. If you, if you care and you want someone to know Jesus, you want to be able to take them to a place that's generous of spirit and kind and loving, irrespective of what kind of life or lifestyle they're living, so that they can have an opportunity and a loving environment to begin to make their own decision about who Jesus is. This is what's happening here. And Jesus is angry. What was happening? Well, think about these people were coming from all over uh, the Mediterranean, many, and not all of them were Jews. And, and they would come, and yeah, there was a, you go all the way back to Exodus chapter 30, there was a half shekel tax that was imposed even during the time of Moses to come and help with the temple. So when you would come for these various feasts during the prescribed feast in Leviticus 23 for people to come, and they would, sometimes long, long traveling they'd have to do, and long walks, and they just didn't hop on a you know, even a Greyhound bus would have looked good back then. I'm telling you. And it was a long walk, and they finally got there, and they come in, and many of them had, obviously, they had Roman currency. And here was uh, pagan emperors on that, and so I said, well, we can't have that. We can't have any. You can pay your, you got to pay it in a half shekel. So you had to take your pagan currency and turn it into 
uh, different kind into shekels, right? And so they would do that, and what do you think they would do? They would, it was like tax collectors. They would just absolutely take advantage of these poor, oftentimes very poor people who were coming, trying to, trying to believe and be at the temple and, and just believe that their life had purpose and meaning and that there was something after their death and that there would be justice in this life, and here they're met with money changers. And then if that wasn't bad enough, then they had to, you know, if you were poor, you, you could, the law prescribed that you could maybe bring a pigeon, and, or if you were a little bit, had a little bit more, you'd take a lamb. It had to be unblemished. Now you had the people back there saying, well, let me examine your lamb here, and they'd find, you know, a little blemish on it, and they'd say, You're, this isn't going to be good at all. What do you think? That's not ripe for uh, just a, a, a big sham? No, this is, this, is, uh, this is blemished. We'll have to give you this one over here. And, and so then they were selling all these animals, and you could hear that all over. And Jesus walks in twice, twice, and I think that's an important thing. Even if he did it once, it would have great import. But the fact that he did it twice really grabs me. And he comes in, and he sees this scene. It wasn't little baby Jesus in a manger. This was wild-eyed you know, kind of like what you see in Revelation, the, it's symbolism, but with a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth and flaming, you know, I mean, here, here comes Jesus, who's going to be the lamb himself, and he comes in and he just tears it apart. And you know what that does for me? That makes me very, very happy because it makes me know that the God, the real, true, one and only God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh, the Father, Son, and Spirit are of one mind. And that mind is we care about those that are exploring faith. And we don't like the holier-than-thou crowd and the hucksters and the charlatans and the shysters that will dance around anybody who has zeal. You know, one of the things that happens is that when you have someone with great zeal, and then they encounter bad religion like this. And God help us if CRD ever is participant in anything like this. I mean, it, I, I, the fear of God is in, on me. You know, every dollar you give means something to us. And I mean that. Our books are open. We're not, there's no huckster, no sh we We don't want to sell it. You, you're welcome to come here. You can come here as long as you want to come here. Do you, do you ever see us? And again, I may be going overboard the other way. People, you know, people, we need to pass the hat. You know, you need, I, I get, when we grew up in church, you pass the hat every week, and otherwise you're not going to be able to meet the bills. We don't pass the hat here. People even struggle where to even find a place to give. Of course, you can give to Church of the Red Door out of generosity. And, I, and, and I, of course, I understand that 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and that giving is a good thing, and generosity, and keeping your church afloat, and all those kinds of things. But I don't want anybody coming off the street and coming to church at the red door and having the sense that this is just about an operation to take my money. If you feel that even a little bit, Jesus said he loves a joyful giver. You can't give joyfully if you're giving out of obligation. I, my, my admonition to you is don't give. Don't give. It puts the fear of God in me, folks. I don't want that. This is a free operation. The gospel is free. And, and people who, you know, give, they give gloriously and beautifully. And it's awesome. But you don't, you don't have to have a dime to your name. And, the, and Jesus died for you just as much as he died for a multi-billionaire. 
And that's the truth, the God's honest truth. So what do we do in light of this? I, I want to go back to the 2 Corinthians 2 real quick. This really hits me. So how do we? We're not peddling it. like He's saying we're not hucksters. That's what he's saying. But, so what's the opposite of being a huckster? I think there are four things that I put from this. Well, we're not peddling it, so we're not hucksters. Number two, now catch this, we're doing this from sincerity. If I ever preach a message and you go, you didn't seem that sincere. You know, I, I want to go out of here and people go, you know, you were fired up today. If that means sincerity, great. And if I was just being a showman or something silly then that doesn't mean anything. But if you just sense my sincerity, we have to. You cannot take this message and do it. I do not. I see people do this sometimes. I don't know how they do it. It's like an, an amazing control of your emotions. And then Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and we can have eternal life. Oh, no, 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 no. You know, and I just like, how can you even say that? Do you not realize the implications of that? And so I'm somewhere in between that and, you know, the old good old Pentecostal world of the days past. But it's got to be sincere. It has to be sincere. That's what Paul's saying. We've got to do this thing with sincerity. Number two, he says, we have to do it as from God. And I'm not afraid to say these are God's words. We are, Church of the Red Door is founded on the belief and the faith and the knowledge that these are God's words, not just man's words. You know, we believe this. Is that an act of faith? Yes, but the more you study it and the more you're into it, the more you go, this is a supernatural book. There's, there's no way. There's nobody smart enough to coordinate a 1,500-year period of time over which, you know, 40 authors plus wrote 66 books in different times, in different cultures, some in slavery, some in kingdoms, some superstar king people, and then some just normal, run-of-the-mill people, and come up with that. If you don't believe that, then you hadn't studied it enough. We teach this with sincerity and the, as though it were directly from God, because it is. We speak in Christ, it says. All this points back to Jesus, not towards our, our take, our, not towards our denomination, not towards our... No, everything points back to Jesus, the real Jesus, the Jesus who Jesus said Jesus was, allowed Jesus to speak for himself, and yes, he claimed to be God. And then lastly, we do it with full recognition that God is watching. We do it, what? In Christ, in the sight of God. And if you think I ever come up here just haphazardly, just kind of winging it and haphazardly, and without a fearful preparation to say, Lord, what do you want to say? I'm not saying every week is great, and I'm not saying every sermon's great, and I'm not saying I'm always every bit, but I, I am sincere, and I believe this is from God, I'll be honest with you, and we only preach Jesus here. And I'll tell you this, I do know that God is watching everything that we do. And in light of that, those are antidotes to bad religion. Antidotes to bad religion. So as we kind of sum up this end of Luke chapter 19, I think what we can see is, that again, and I think it's important that you see this, Jesus in some way is using the very language that Jeremiah used. So a couple of takeaways we can get here. Uh, 
Again, let me restate this. I said it earlier. There is a cyclicality to human nature that's the same. As Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. If you have a place where people are going to come and they're going to say, you know what, this impulse is in me, there is a God impulse in me, there is a sense that I am eternal, there is a sense that I do have meaning, there's a sense that things will be judged at some point, Uh, there is a taste for that in my mouth. And you go and then you exploit that very passion, watch out, watch out. Nothing's changed. That was the case during Jeremiah's time. It was the case during the time of Jesus. And it's clearly the case we find ourselves in today. And I have every temptation to be insincere and hucksterish at times. And Lord, save us from that. And that's why we have all kinds of checks and balances here from trustees to elders to executive team people to all kinds of people, right? I am not the captain of this ship. Jesus is the captain of this ship. And I am subject to scrutiny just like anybody else. And you need to know that. Why? Because none of us trust ourselves completely in and of ourselves. But as a community, and we're aspirational and intentional as a community, we believe that we can stay on the path that God has called us and accomplish the purposes for which God has called us in this particular time in the 21st century, soon to be on Jefferson and 49th. (laughs) Right? And that's good preaching. I'll just tell you, that's good preaching. (laughs) So, what was the problem with Jerusalem? Why did Jesus weep over it? Why? Because they didn't understand the things that make for peace. So, let's just be clear as we finish this chapter out. What are the things that make for peace? It's very simple. Ephesians chapter 2. Listen to Paul's letter to Ephesus. He himself is our peace. This goes back to that part about it's always in Christ. Jesus is our peace. Not your good behavior, not anything. Jesus took the punishment on the cross so that you can have peace with God. Now, why wouldn't you follow him if you really believe that? You might even find yourself cleaning some bathrooms because you were so in awe of the glory and the sacrifice of Jesus. Can anything be above? Can we be above anything? We're bond slaves. Paul said, you've been bought with a price. You're not your own. Why? Because we understand that Jesus is our peace. He made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. That means Jew and Gentile. There's no, there's no law divider anymore. You know, the Jews, like, don't associate with Gentiles. Don't have anything to do with them. Don't eat with them. Don't do anything with them. Be careful. And yet the prophet said, but you're going to be a light to them. And now in Christ, that barrier of that dividing law, that wall, that dividing line has been abolished in Christ. And so we have Jewish and Gentile believers in Jesus now. And some of you know that. And, and we, have, we, have, we support and we love those believing Jewish community in, in Israel. And we, and we have Arab brothers and sisters and all, all that. It's all abolished in Christ. And that makes peace. How do we get peace? I don't know. I can't believe. Can you believe these strikes that are happening in our, with Iran and now the, some of the strikes are going in Iraq and now these uh, hoodies and all this other kind of What are we going to do? There will never be peace in the Middle East. Outside of Christ, there will never be peace in the Middle East. But there is hope for peace, and his name is Jesus. He left us his peace. And once you understand that, you can have hope. You can walk out of here with a smile, even even though you see things happening in and around the world that just make your your stomach turn. We become mourners, Ecclesiastes 7. Remember, the mind of the wise is in the house of mourning. 
We mourn. As Jesus mourned over Jerusalem, we mourn over this valley. And if you don't have any passion for this valley, ask the Lord. You know what? I don't really care about my neighbor. I feel more like judging my neighbor than laying down my life for my neighbor. Tell God like he didn't know it. I mean, when I have people that I can't love or that I'm feeling set against, I say, Lord, would you give me a love for that ethnic group or people or whatever? You know, would you do that? And I've got, I'm just like you. I'm I'm impacted by what I see on the news and this and that. And I say, okay, Lord, you're going to have to give me a passion and a love for these people. And and whatever, whatever the divide is, be in the house of mourning like Jesus was. Why? Because the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure, the house of pleasure. So are you willing to follow in the footsteps of both Jeremiah and Jesus? Would you allow your minds to be in the house of mourning or do you avoid mourning at all costs? Mourning for a a culture that has gone astray or do we just sit around and talk and complain and murmur and moan about our political state? Our political state is exactly what this nation deserves right now. We have exactly the leaders that we deserve and whose problem is that? They said, America's problem. It is, and by extension, the world. But who's, who has the answer to this? The church has the answer. So if the church rises up, then our nation will change, and our, our leaders will then reflect the nation again. If, why, why, do you go to, why do we go so far to go to the end and, and complain about the weeds that are growing and saying, look, well, who's throwing all this seed back here? We... We have the implements to get rid of some of this bad seed, some of this bad religion, some of this bad ways to think about reality and the reason you exist on the earth. We are the church, the pillar and support of the truth. We are the salt and the light. That is what we have been called to do. We are preservative. And so if the meat's going bad, then the preservative's not been poured. And the reason is, is the church, well, sometimes we don't act like the church. Let's be the church. Let's be the church.